Biden's new Title IX rules deputize teachers to override parents on gender identity. Biden's supersized IRS army will declare war on political enemies. And are they really going to indict President Trump? It's all in this edition of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. Welcome to the Voice of the Resistance with Doc Washburn. We're the show that pushes back against the Uniparty and lets you in on the news that traditional talk radio is all too often afraid to talk about. This is episode 218 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. It's Tuesday, August 16th, 2022. Just so you understand where I'm coming from, I was fired by one of the biggest radio companies in America, Cumulus Media, simply because I refused their vaccine mandate. More evidence comes out all the time that a lot of people are having serious negative reactions to the vaccines. Also, I will never call Joe Biden president because it's obvious the last U.S. presidential election was stolen. I will never pretend a man can become a woman, and I will never forget about the January 6th political prisoners most Republican politicians refuse to even mention. And August 8th, 2022, the day the Biden regime's secret police conducted an unprecedented and unconstitutional raid on the home of a former president of the United States is a day that will live in infamy. So this is a really different kind of talk show. We're unmasked, uncensored, and unfiltered. If you'd like to support what we do, go to our website, docwashburn.com, and click on the button that says Become a Patron. Also, please subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. All right, I've got some breaking news. I need to start off here. Dr. Deborah Burks. You heard she's got a book out. Raheem Kassam over the nationalpulse.com just came out with an article. In Dr. Burks's book, she claims the big pharma companies are responsible for thousands of deaths during the COVID peak. Now, why does it seem nobody in the pharma-sponsored media has picked up on this strange story? Former White House Coronavirus Task Force spokesman, Ambassador Deborah Burks, has effectively laid blame for thousands of deaths at the door of big pharmaceutical giants Pfizer and Moderna, claiming their refusal to pursue a compassionate use authorization for the COVID-19 vaccines led to a delay which directly impacted nursing home residents. The details come in the final parts of Dr. Burks's Little Red Book. Hardly anybody's read it. Entitled Silent Invasion, wherein she details how she used subterfuge to get around the will of the Trump administration, as well as naming Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, and Vice President Mike Pence as her go-to people in the government. In Chapter 19, entitled Winter is Here, Deborah Burks turns her guns on the same pharmaceutical companies she and her colleague Anthony Fauci promoted and protected during the COVID-19 outbreak. Specifically, she points out the corporates who were shielded by government from liability failed to get vital doses of their vaccines into the arms of those who needed it earliest, the elderly. Here's the quote. Getting as many people inoculated as quickly and equitably as possible remained one of my priorities, 
In addition to emergency use authorization, the FDA also has the authority to allow the use of therapeutics and vaccines and the use of experimental drugs to people outside clinical trials under what's called compassionate use authorization. Lacking the holy grail of emergency use authorization, which was pending, I continued to try to find a way to get the highest risk group immunized as quickly as possible. In early November 2020, I asked Tony and Steve to approach Moderna and Pfizer and urge them to apply for a compassionate use authorization while their vaccine's efficacy was still being determined, but safety was fairly clear. With a compassionate use authorization in hand, we could inoculate any nursing home residents who wished to be. Whether they volunteer for the jabs or not, at least they would have the option. But as many continued to die, her wishes were not carried out. She explains again, quote, We had a narrow window and it was closing. 1,500 nursing home residents died in the first week of October. The vaccine manufacturers, I learned, had already stockpiled 3 million doses. If we could draw from that supply through compassionate use authorization, thousands of lives could be saved. This didn't happen. Pfizer and Moderna declined to pursue compassionate use authorization. They believed the process would be a distraction. Their eyes were fixed on the emergency use authorization, another complicated process. Taking on both simply wasn't possible. I believed it was possible. It just wasn't part of the plan these manufacturers had envisioned. Burks then goes on to detail the number of people that were affected by the major corporation's refusal to pursue a faster route to market. At the time, many suspected they were refusing to do so because such speed would give President Trump an ostensible boost right before the U.S. presidential election. And it goes on and on and on. On and on and on. But, you know, it's remarkable. It's remarkable that our pharma-boosted media Boosted with a lot of cash. They don't want to say, oh, by the way, Deborah Burks has a, a book out, and here's what she's saying. Kayla McGee White over at New York Post has a new article. Biden's new Title IX rules deputize teachers to override parents on gender identity. Team Biden's proposed new Title IX regulations make it clear they are coming for your children. The Biden administration ostensibly drafted the rules to protect gay and transgender students from bullying and harassment, but they do nothing of the sort. In reality, Dementia Joe is handing teachers a weapon to subvert parental prerogatives. Title IX is a simple statute that outlaws sex discrimination in education. It says nothing about gender or gender identity. But the Biden administration wants to put its own spin on the law and redefine sex to include these categories. Oh, and they link to uh, the categories over at NPR. Biden's Title IX reforms would roll back Trump-era rules, expand victim protections. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Trans this, trans that. This change has far-reaching implications. One is that it will 
be used to keep parents in the dark on everything from curricular material to the fact that a child is socially transitioning at school. Because this new Title IX frames gender ideology as an anti-discrimination issue, schools won't have to seek parental permission for children to participate in lessons on choosing and changing one's sex. Indeed, schools will very likely use Title IX's anti-discrimination mandate to justify denying parental opt-outs from these controversial lessons. The rules will also grant children an absolute right to use school facilities and participate in activities consistent with their gender identity, regardless of whether their parents agree or are even aware of said identity. A mother in Washington State, by the way, told the author of this article, Kaylee McGee-White, school officials asked her, 11-year daughter, if she wanted to stay in the boys' cabin on an upcoming field trip without talking to the mother first. The regulations will give legal backing for such actions all across the country. In many places, schools are already claiming legal authority to socially transition children without parental consent or knowledge. In Alaska, one school used Title IX as a justification for changing a child's name and pronouns without telling her mother. Officials then revised every single school document other than those sent to the parents to reflect the child's chosen male name. That name even appeared in the yearbook. When the mother found out and protested, school officials said she had no say over the matter because of Title IX. Perhaps most alarming is the way in which officials might use the rules to threaten parents who don't affirm their child's chosen identity because the regulations claim to apply to conduct that occurs outside the school's education program or activity or outside the United States. Schools might get the impression they can label parental conduct at home discriminatory. A parent who refuses to use a child's preferred pronouns declines to fill a prescription for puberty blockers, or decides against sending a gender-confused child to an affirming therapist, thus is discriminating against his or her child. What is a teacher or Title IX coordinator to do in such a circumstance? It's easy to see how school employees might believe they're even required to report such parents to social services. The rules say schools must respond to a hostile environment based on sex. Biden's broadly written Title IX rules give the government a good faith basis to investigate parents for creating a so-called harmful environment for their child. Now, this is already happening around the country to families all over the place. A California father recently told me his daughter's school filed a report with Child Protective Services after officials found out he and his wife were not referring to their daughter by her preferred male name. A CPS agent showed up to the school that same day and informed the parents that she would be removing their daughter from their custody, accusing them of subjecting their daughter to emotional damage. It took the father about a month to get his daughter back, 
and she was returned only after he signed a CPS waiver, vowing to use her male name moving forward. Biden's proposal is an invasive use of federal power to deputize teachers and school administrators to override parental decision-making. And while some states have passed laws to protect parental prerogatives, the administration will claim that its federal rules take precedence. It may be up to the courts to decide the limits of Title IX. In the meantime, we're likely to hear even more heartbreaking stories of schools usurping parents who want the best for their kids. That is Kaylee McGee-White, Deputy Editor of the Washington Examiner's Restoring America and an Independent Women's Forum Visiting Fellow over at New York Post. Article entitled, Biden's New Title IX Rules Deputize Teachers to Override Parents on Gender Identity. Have I mentioned to you these people are evil? Because these people are evil. Our Lord said one time that it would be better to tie a millstone around your neck and throw it into the deepest sea than to offend one of these little ones who believe in me. So I was running for the Republican nomination for uh, governor of Arkansas earlier this year, and after a campaign event, a young lady came up to me and she said, I am a third-grade teacher in the Bentonville, Arkansas school district, and I'm going to be resigning my post at the end of the school year because we are under orders not to tell parents if their third-grade children want to change gender. Got it? That's going on. That is going on. What's also going on? Betsy McCoy, former lieutenant governor of the state of New York, Republican, has a new article out in New York Post, Biden's supersized IRS army will declare war on political enemies. She said the public should be should be frightened. The Democrats have passed new legislation to weaponize the already abusive Internal Revenue Service. For nearly a century, presidents and members of Congress have used the IRS to harass and incriminate political foes. In addition to collecting revenue to fund the government, the IRS is a hit squad that destroys reputations and criminalizes dissenters. A lot of pain can be inflicted under the guise of tax auditing. The bill Joe Biden signed today erroneously labeled the Inflation Reduction Act will mean more audits and more investigations. The law roughly doubles funding for the IRS's enforcement division adding as many as 87,000 new agents and auditors. Biden, meanwhile, is starving the Defense Department, requesting too little funding to even keep up with inflation despite Russian and Chinese aggression. Yet his legislation will make the IRS three-quarters the size of the Marine Corps. Who is Biden actually making war on? While the bill increases the IRS's muscle, it fails to impose serious criminal penalties. If the IRS leaks confidential taxpayer information or goes after political targets, history shows the danger ahead. In the 1930s, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt used the IRS to harass newspaper publishers 
who oppose his New Deal and adversaries like Senator Huey Long and Father Coughlin. Throughout the 1950s and 1960s, the IRS gave FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover access to its files, allowing him to weaponize tax information against the National Council of Churches, the NAACP, and Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. President John Kennedy set up the Ideological Organization's Audit Project to target right-leaning groups, including the American Enterprise Institute Think Tank and the John Birch Society. President Nixon's counsel, John Dean, admitted their administration used the existing federal machinery to screw our political enemies. John Dean's words, not mine. The IRS was Nixon's weapon of choice. The articles of impeachment against Nixon included charges that he ordered income tax audits or other income tax investigations in a discriminatory manner. Bill Clinton's administration sicked the IRS on accusers Jennifer Flowers and Paula Jones. Barack Obama's IRS targeted Tea Party groups and other conservative nonprofits leading up to the 2012 presidential election, delaying their tax-exempt status to keep them from raising money. That scandal blew open in 2013 when IRS official Lois Lerner admitted the targeting, yet no charges were brought against Lerner or any other IRS official, and she retired with full benefits. And the abuse continues. Biden's IRS leaked confidential tax material from Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, and other billionaires to a left-wing publication, ProPublica, ProPublica. Tax information is supposed to be kept confidential. We Americans have no choice but to provide it. But the IRS was playing footsie with left-wing media to help Democrats push their false claim that a tax crackdown is needed. NPR praised the bill Biden just signed. For, for, quote, going after rich tax dodgers, unquote, while Slate magazine cheered the so-called supercharged IRS. Don't buy the rhetoric. Tax evasion is not a serious problem in America, as it is in many other nations. Americans deplore tax cheats, according to all the polls. The United States has one of the highest voluntary tax compliance rates in the world, about 88% far higher than in Western Europe. Now, the IRS may need funding to improve services to taxpayers, including getting phone calls answered and returns processed and moving from antiquated paper files to modern technology. Yet the new law allocates a minuscule amount to those priorities and puts the lion's share, more than $45 billion into so-called enforcement, including hiring and arming agents. As much as 90% of the money raised through beefed-up audits will come from people making less than $200,000 a year, according to the Bipartisan Joint Committee on Taxation. Audits can bring a tsunami of government document demands and repeated visits from IRS agents over months or even years. 
Most people don't have accountants and lawyers to insulate, to insulate themselves from the pain. Worst of all, history shows the agency's magnified clout will be used to muzzle and punish political critics. And that is a serious blow to our freedom. That is former Republican Lieutenant Governor of New York, Betsy McCoy, at the New York Post. Article entitled, Biden's Supersized IRS Army Will Declare War on Political Enemies. All right, I just want to say how much we appreciate our sponsors. Our sponsors are not only advertisers, but they are our friends, and they make it possible for us to do the Doc Washburn Show five times a week, and we can't thank them enough. If you try to buy a car recently, you realize there's such a chip shortage, you may have a hard time finding what you're looking for. People I know have actually bought vehicles from hundreds of miles away from where they live. That's where Red River Your Way comes in. Red River Your Way is a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA that believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV the way you want to. You can buy online, and they'll drive it to you no matter where you are. Red River Your Way wants to make your car buying experience as easy and transparent as possible. That's why they've added technology to their website to put you in complete control of your payment options and allows you to complete the entire purchase process online. But don't worry, Red River experts are still here to help you every step of the way if you have any questions. Red River makes it so easy. As you browse their selection, you'll see each vehicle has a button that says Explore Payment Options on it. Clicking that button guides you through a few easy questions and then create personalized payment options you have complete control over. All you have to do is adjust your preferences, and all the math happens automatically so you can figure out what monthly payment works best for your budget. Red River Your Way makes car buying online easy. Your whole car buying process is completely transparent. If you want to buy a car, truck, van, or SUV, order online from the nationwide car dealer that believes in freedom, the dealer that will deliver your vehicle to your front door no matter where you live, redriveryourway.com. You will be glad you did. All right, let me ask you this. Does your financial advisor take the time to listen and get to know you? Is your financial strategy personalized for you and your family? Will your financial advisor be there as your life and financial situations change? When you work with Jonathan Presswood, he focuses on what's important to you. He uses an established process to help you achieve your unique goals, whether that's preparing for retirement, making your money last in retirement, planning your estate or inheritance, preparing for the unexpected, or anything else. Jonathan Presswood can help. Now, what should you do if you leave a job and have a 401k or other retirement plan? Or if you're getting close to retirement or already in retirement? Call my friend, Jonathan Presswood, today. He'll help you create a personalized financial strategy backed by the advice, tools, and resources to help you reach your goals. And he'll partner together with you to help your strategy stay on track no matter what life throws at you. Listen, we can all dream of having a perfect retirement, but how many of us will actually experience it? No matter where you are today, Jonathan Presswood is offering a free retirement analysis to figure out where you'd like to be and what it will take to get you there, and there's no obligation. Contact Jonathan Presswood, a financial advisor with Edward Jones Investments, today at 501 503-4844. Again, that's 501-303-4844. Don't wait. Call Jonathan Presswood today at 501-303-4844.
888-344-4844. Now, if you're like me, you can't remember phone numbers, go to our website, docwashburnshow.com. Just click on the link to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. Edward Jones, making sense of investing. Member SIPC. Thank you so much again to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones, financial advisors, and Mitch Ward at Red River Your Way. We really appreciate our clients, our advertisers, our sponsors. They're also our friends, and they make it possible for us to do what we do every day. So I sure hope if you're looking for financial advice, you talk to Jonathan Presswood at Edward Jones. And if you're looking for a vehicle, new or used, car, truck, van, or SUV, Red River. YourWay.com. The great Victor Davis Hanson over at American Greatness has an article entitled Why Merrick Garland is Losing the People. Subtitle, Is the Attorney General Disingenuous or Simply Naive? Oh, I think I can answer that one. Mr. Hanson, with all due, due respect, I will say he was he's totally disingenuous. But here is what Victor Davis Hansen says. Attorney General Merrick Garland on Thursday held a belated press conference to explain that he had personally approved the FBI's raid of Donald Trump's Florida residence to seize documents deemed U.S. government property. A clearly agitated and nervous Merrick Garland sought to exude confidence in the raid. He went on to heatedly defend the professionalism and integrity of the Justice Department and the FBI. But almost immediately after his sermon, the Justice Department and its affiliates were back to their usual selective leaking. Sources say, according to people familiar with the investigation, yeah, their usual selective leaking to liberal newspapers. In no time, the Washington Post claimed the raid was aimed at finding Trump administration documents relating to nuclear secrets. The now familiar desired effect was achieved. So-called presidential historian Michael Beschloss quickly tweeted a picture of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, noting that in the past, revealing such nuclear secrets had led to the death penalty. Former CIA Director Michael Hayden, previously known for comparing Trump's border detention facilities to Auschwitz and falsely claiming the Hunter Biden laptop was Russian disinformation, he replied to Beschloss's picture of the Rosenbergs who got capital punishment. He replied, sounds about right. That is, without any proof, it was legitimate to imagine the former president of the United States, like the Rosenbergs, should be executed for passing nuclear secrets. So as intended... The Justice Department and FBI leaks touched off a round of intended liberal hysteria of the sort we saw during special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into alleged Russian collusion with Trump's 2016 campaign aimed at disguising government misdeeds or overreach. Kind of reminds me of the uh, festivities when they were trying to... uh, Approved the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh of the Supreme Court, too. Despite Garland's pious assertions, we know the modus operandi of selective leaking from the career of Andrew McCabe. 
The disgraced former interim FBI director admitted to lying to federal investigators about his role in leaking to the Wall Street Journal. And the inspector general found McCabe lied on several other occasions about his efforts to leak to and massage the media. At this point, we should assume that the words sources tell us and according to unnamed sources are indications that the sources are Justice Department and or FBI contacts who are given the green light to manipulate the news by their superiors. Let's put Garland's decision to approve the raid on Mar-a-Lago in the context of the past seven years. The Justice Department and FBI in 2016 interfered in a presidential election in two major ways. First, they exonerated Hillary Clinton's clearly illegal use of a private server and her destruction of subpoena data. The FBI hired Clinton operative Christopher Steele as an informant and gave its crossfire hurricane imprimatur to the entire Russian collusion hoax, feeding a 2016 left-wing mantra that Trump was a Russian asset. In 2015, we learned candidate Hillary Clinton as Barack Obama's Secretary of State had emailed classified government materials using her own private server, likely as a way of skirting Freedom of Information Act requirements. In the thick of the 2016 campaign a year later, FBI Director James Comey reported Hillary had, in fact, broken the law. Yet he assumed a role of federal attorney that was not his own, deciding Hillary's wrongdoing should not lead to an indictment. In that improper role, Jim Comey, not U.S. attorneys, declined to hold Hillary Clinton accountable. We learned later that Attorney General Loretta Lynch had met secretly on an airport tarmac, a brief casual social meeting, with Bill Clinton. Somewhere within his tangle of lies, both said they met only to talk about their grandchildren, not about whether the Justice Department would charge Hillary Clinton. We learned, one, Lynch abdicated her role and simply let Jim Comey play the role of investigator and prosecutor, and two, Hillary Clinton had bleached thousands of emails, some of them under federal subpoena, and destroyed her communications devices and records, all federal felonies. Yeah, yeah, they took hammers to cell phones. By the way, um, last I checked, Loretta Lynch doesn't have any grandchildren. Anyway, Trump won the election in 2016, but he never controlled the federal government. For 22 months, at a cost of $40 million, Robert Mueller investigated whether Trump had colluded with the Russians to take the White House. Ironically, there was ample evidence to show that Hillary Clinton may in fact have done exactly that. After all, Hillary worked for the Democrat National Committee, which in turn hired the Perkins Coie legal firm, which hired Fusion GPS, which hired ex-spy Christopher Steele, who hired Russian disinformation source Igor Jachenko, who used Moscow-based former Clintonite Charles Dolan to find dirt on Trump. Where Dushenko and Dolan located their false dirt for steel, no one knows for certain. Some Russian source is most likely the, the culprit. In the end, the ruse was exposed. 
But in the process of exposing that scandal, the Justice Department's Inspector General found the FBI lawyer Kevin Kleinsmith had altered an application for a warrant from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to make it appear Trump campaign manager, pardon me, Trump campaign volunteer Carter Page was a Russian agent. In reality, Page is working with the CIA. Now, Kleinsmith's FBI superiors had signed off on that fraudulent document that contained legions of errors. We learned also that two of the FBI investigators working for Robert Mueller in 2017 were rank partisans and in their amorous exchanges before the 2016 election had texted about how to stop Trump amid slanders and slurs about his candidacy and supporters until they were reassigned, both have played key roles in investigating Trump. We also learned the FBI had lost key cell phone data under court request. We were told the point man of Robert Mueller's dream team, All-Stars and hunter-killer team, as the left gushed of the liberal legal ensemble, former Justice Department attorney Andrew Weissman, before, during, and after his tenure on Mueller's team, was a self-admitted anti-Trump partisan. Mueller closed up shop in early 2019, finding no evidence of collusion. After putting two years of a presidency under a constant cloud of implied criminality, Mueller, under oath, admitted he didn't know anything about the Steele dossier or the role of Fusion GPS in disseminating the fraud. Well, I guess he didn't really investigate anything then, did he? No sane person could believe Robert Mueller, given that the role of the dossier and Fusion GPS were the two chief catalysts leading to his own appointment. Was Mueller addled or simply not telling the truth? Throughout this sordid nightmare, the FBI and Justice Department routinely leaked details. The left-wing media serially blared as bombshells, and evidence that the walls are closing in. Everybody assured the public that Trump and his family would soon be behind bars for their ties to Russia and sundry other crimes. No one has been held accountable for these lies. James Comey hired the lying Christopher Steele as an informant. The FBI fired him when they discovered he kept leaking secret information to his own media friends. When Comey was finally called to testify by Congress, he swore under oath 245 times he had no memory or knowledge of the questions asked. Comey did admit, however, that after a private one-on-one conversation with President Trump, he immediately memorialized his version of the confidential discussion using FBI time and devices. He then acknowledged that he later leaked his version of events to the media through a third party. The goal was to prompt the appointment of a special counsel, eventually to be his friend Robert Mueller. Comey went to great but vain lengths to explain how leaking a government memo of a confidential presidential conversation, which was either classified or confidential, was not illegal after all. Comey also later bragged publicly how he sent Agent Peter Strzok on a pre-planned mission to surprise National Security Advisor Michael Flynn in hopes of finding Flynn a violation of the Logan Act, a 1799 law 
that has never been prosecuted successfully in the history of this country. Nevertheless, the threat of prosecution was enough to take down a high-profile Trump appointee. After Comey was rightly fired, his deputy, Andrew McCabe, assumed control of the FBI. Again, he lied serially to federal investigators. McCabe oversaw the notorious email investigation that exonerated Hillary Clinton at the very time his wife was running for office in Virginia, aided by funding from Political Action Committee with ties to the Clintons. McCabe, remember, also purportedly discussed wearing a wire stealthily to monitor Trump in hopes of recording embarrassing private conversations that would help convince the cabinet to remove President Trump under the 25th Amendment. In 2020, the FBI sat on the Hunter Biden laptop and its analysts helped feed leaks protecting Joe Biden's presidential campaign from otherwise damaging disclosures. Some of the laptop's contents, however, were in the public domain prior to FBI confiscation, and they had variously suggested that Joe Biden and his family were likely involved in selling influence for sizable sums to foreign governments. The laptop evidence suggested additionally Hunter Biden had committed a series of tax, drug, and sex felonies. Yet somehow, 50 former CIA and other intelligence officials, among them prior intelligence heads John Brennan, Leon Panetta, Michael Hayden, and James Clapper, believe they had enough knowledge of the laptop on the eve of the election to assure the country it was Russian disinformation. No, I don't believe they thought they had enough knowledge. They were lying. Note that Senator Chuck Grassley, Republican Iowa, and other senators believe that an FBI agent and or analyst had deliberately mischaracterized the laptop as disinformation to protect Joe Biden. Now, Merrick Garland can defend but cannot explain the strange role of the FBI informants. Aside from the infamous Christopher Steele, informants kept reappearing in almost every sensationalized political event. Twelve of them apparently were the de facto architects in a plot to kidnap Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer. Their nefarious role is one of the reasons why two of the charged defendants were acquitted and two were not found guilty due to mistrials. Nor could Garland explain the strange statement from the New York Times reporter Michael Rosenberg, who said there were a ton of FBI informants among the people who attacked the Capitol on January 6, 2021. Really? How about that? Yep, Garland didn't have an explanation. There's also the strange asymmetry of the FBI. It routinely now resorts to pre-dawn SWAT raids, shackling the legs and hands of elderly men and swooping in on would-be targets on the street. Trump associates Peter Navarro, Rudy Giuliani, and John Eastman have all been confronted by the FBI and either arrested, had their offices searched, or had their phones seized, or all three. But so far, only Roger Stone, the target of an FBI SWAT team, which CNN just happened to be on hand to cover, was charged and convicted of a crime. 
Last week events, last week's events at Mar-a-Lago are part of this pattern. Raiding the home of the current Republican presidential frontrunner who would beat Joe Biden and Kamala Harris if the general election were held today. So to answer Merrick Garland's scolding, how might the FBI not have lost the faith of the American people? It might not have altered documents to ruin the life of an American citizen. When subpoenas arrived for phone records, it could have admitted it could have submitted them rather than wipe them clean. Its directors might not have stonewalled Congress while under oath or lied to federal investigators or leaked confidential government memos to the press. The FBI did not have to mislead about the contents of a controversial laptop. There was no need to hire foreign nationals during a presidential election to supply dirt on one of the two candidates. The attorney general did not need to meet secretly with a husband of someone under FBI investigation. Just as the FBI apparently did not need to raid Kevin Kleinsmith's home to find information about his doctoring of an email or to put leg irons on Andrew McCabe for lying to a federal prosecutor or to ambush Christopher Steele and grab his cell phone to ensure he stopped leaking FBI information and lying to the Bureau. So, too, it had no need of shackling Peter Navarro or publicly seizing the phone of Representative Scott Perry. Finally, there are existential threats to the United States on the open southern border from cartel drug runners and terrorists to child traffickers for 120 days in 2020. Antifa and Black Lives Matter coordinated violent riots that led to over 35 dead, $2 billion in property damage, and over 1,500 law enforcement officers injured. A federal courthouse, a police precinct, and the historic St. James Episcopal Church in Washington were at various times torched. Rioters attempted to storm the White House grounds and sent the Secret Service scrambling to a secure bunker with the president. All, the above, all of the above was mostly ignored by the FBI. Yet these and other violence and illegality posed far more dangers to the American people than do the worried Virginia parents upset about the critical race theory indoctrination of their children. Finally, again, Garland has failed to explain why he had sought out a particular federal magistrate to approve the warrant to raid Mar-a-Lago, a magistrate who earlier had recused himself from another case involving Trump. Apparently, Magistrate Bruce Reinhardt felt that either his own past partisanship or prior legal work made it impossible for him to remain unbiased in cases involving the former president, except... On the present occasion, to empower the FBI to raid Trump's home. But again, Marla Garland did give a spirited, almost angry defense of the Justice Department and FBI. He was in hot denial that they were anything but professional civil servants. Yet he did not explain why so called nuclear secrets 
long sitting in the locked room at Mar-a-Lago, were suddenly putting the nation in harm's way in a manner they had not eight or 18 months ago. That raised the question whether Garland is disingenuous or simply naive. After all, the American people have long trusted their FBI. They want to remain confident in its leadership, yet it was not the public, but high-ranking justice and FBI officials themselves, among them most recently Merrick Garland himself, who squandered that confidence, and they should now look forward rather than blast critics for what they have done to themselves and to the country. That is the great Victor Davis Hanson. Over at American Greatness, amgreatness.com, article entitled, Why Merrick Garland is Losing the People. Boy, and he certainly is losing the people. All right, coming up, are they really going to indict President Trump? we got to talk about that. But first, thank you to our advertisers, our friends, for making it possible for us to do the Doc Washburn Show five times a week. Hey, I'd like to help you with some health issues. You have migraines, neck pain, back pain, vertigo, acid reflux, eczema, problems with your blood sugar, maybe even hay fever. Okay, let's do a little test. Look in the mirror. Does one eye look bigger than the other? Are your eyes off balance? Are your shoulders off balance? Look at a picture of yourself. Are you tilting your head to the left or the right instead of sitting up or standing up straight? If the answer to any of these questions is yes, you probably need to get your atlas adjusted. That's how I got rid of my migraines, neck pain, and hay fever. Let me explain to you how it works because it's the best kept secret in American healthcare. Your skull weighs anywhere from 8 to 15 pounds. It rests on the top bone of your spinal column, the atlas, which only weighs 2 ounces. So it's really easy for your atlas to get out of alignment. If it does, your whole spinal column can get kinked up like a chain, restricting your central nervous system's ability to send impulses to the rest of your body. It can affect your respiratory system, reproductive system, circulatory system, even digestive system. And yes, it can cause migraines, neck pain, back pain, acid reflux, eczema, vertigo, problems with your blood sugar. Do yourself a favor. If you're in Arkansas, call my friends at the Arkansas Upper Cervical Center 501-279-2009 for a free consultation to see if you need to get your atlas adjusted, because you probably do. If you're outside Central Arkansas, go to their website, turnmypoweron.com, and click on Find a Doctor Near You. And I sure hope you can. Thank you once again to my friends, my doctors, Dr. J.R. Crabtree and his wife, Dr. Tanya Crabtree, Arkansas Cervical Center. They've helped me, my wife, and so many other people we know. TurnMyPowerOn.com. Okay, before I get to the topic of are they really going to indict President Trump, because this is a scary time for our country, I want to uh, I want to first share with you something that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis said at the end of his press conference this morning, and a liberal put it up on Twitter, thinking this is just one of the worst things he's ever heard. But I think we think it's pretty fantastic. 
Now people are doing, looking at the, the research, they're saying, oh man, the masks uh, will hurt the kids. Now we we banned the masks in Florida um, uh, with, with the legislature, with the Parents' Bill of Rights and, and, and other actions, but you know the reality is that was not grounded in data. It was not grounded in evidence. It was basically the current thing, you know, people would put in their Twitter profile a mask and a, and a, and a syringe, and that was like their identity, and it was ridiculous. They lied to us about the mRNA shots. They said if you take it, you will not get COVID. That is false. That is not true. And they continue to say even now when the evidence is so overwhelming uh, that not only is that not true, people that have multiple boosters, you know, you're a, you're definitely at risk of getting it. There's no question about that. So, so it's just time and time again, I think you've seen ideology placed over over data and evidence. And then what happens is, is that they will say something like, okay, Okay, six weeks of masks will end COVID. So that's what they claim. It doesn't happen. And then what they'll do is they will kind of move the goalposts and say, well, you know, only 95% wore it. So now, and they will constantly uh, try to shift because they will never admit that their ideology was, was incorrect. So that's very, very dangerous when you're looking at all these things. So that's a problem with our society that we're grappling with. And what I've said in the state of Florida, because we've taken on woke corporations, We've taken on ESG. Obviously, in the classroom, we've battled a lot of ideologies. But what I've said is that the state of Florida is the state, uh, is the place where woke goes to die. Uh, We are not going to let this state... We're not going to let this state descend into some type of woke dumpster fire. We're going to be following common sense. We're going to be following, um, you know, facts. And that's just really, really important. So anyways, thank you guys for being here. God bless you all. Fantastic. And he has joined with President Trump and is going around the country campaigning, campaigning for candidates of President Trump has uh, endorsed. And I think that's fantastic. All right, now, let's look at this. The great Rich Lowry over the New York Post. Longtime conservative op-ed guy. Article entitled, Merrick Garland looks set to indict Trump despite his glaring conflict of interest. He says, does Attorney General Merrick Garland know that he is investigating the man most likely to be the opponent of the president he serves? Does he realize the intense political pressure campaign he's under to indict that man has been plainly visible to everyone? Does he care? If we can't know where Garland is ultimately heading in his probe of January 6th and the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago, all indications are that he is preparing the ground for an indictment of Donald J. Trump. The former president is inflammatory and mendacious as a matter of course, but in this case, it is the mild-mannered former judge who came within a hair's breadth of a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court who is rehearsing for the role of arsonist Now, this is something I was telling a friend of mine today at lunch, a friend of mine who works in the Arkansas State Government. I said, look, this raid on Mar-a-Lago has infuriated 
a lot of Republicans who don't like Trump. They're like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You don't do that. Are you kidding me? The raid on Mar-a-Lago has infuriated not just people who like Trump. It's infuriated a lot of people who can't stand him because they're like, hold on. Do we just throw out the Fourth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution? Are you kidding me? So clearly, here is an example right here. Rich Lowry is no Trump fan, but he's saying, good grief. Merrick Garland is the arsonist. He says an indictment of Donald Trump would be one of the most consequential acts by the Justice Department in decades, and Garland has a flagrant conflict of interest and will likely have to use an adventurous legal theory to try to nail Trump. At the same time, the legitimacy of his institution is increasingly in doubt. Talk about the legitimacy of the DOJ itself. He says, this is not a promising formula. An attorney general should not consider the prospect of reaping the whirlwind and just think, oh, bring it on. The January 6th committee, elected Democrats and the media have been braying for Garland to move against Trump. Joe Biden, remember, I will never call him president, including when I'm reading somebody else's article. Dementia Joe himself has reportedly told aides in private that Garland should indict Trump. New York Times reported earlier this year in their article entitled, Garland Faces Growing Pressure as January 6th Investigation Widens. It would take truly cussed independence and enormous moral and political courage not to take the path of least resistance and give in to these voices. Garland appears to be bending, presumably on his way, to breaking. It is amazing that he's gotten this far without feeling a prick of conscience about his own status. I have no use for special counsels as a general matter. But how can an attorney general make highly sensitive determinations that will quite quite probably affect the state of play of the next presidential election without realizing he has a profound conflict of interest? It would be one thing if Trump had shot someone on Fifth Avenue, a clean, no-doubt crime, That wouldn't require any more theories or difficult-to-probe contentions about his state of mind to prosecute. In contrast, Trump's January 6th offenses involve alleged crimes like obstructing Congress or defrauding the United States that are going to involve tricky questions about his motives and where the legitimate exercise of his powers end and the supposed criminality begins. Needless to say, a country is not prepared to adjudicate such questions in a calm, high-minded manner. It will be the O.J. Simpson trial meets the Alger Hiss Whitaker Chambers case 
with the presidential race, not in the background, but very much in the foreground. The fact of the matter is that while Trump's moral blameworthiness for January 6th is not in doubt, yes, it is, you liar. I'm done with you. I'm done with you. This idiot, Rich Lowry, thinks that Trump is responsible for any and all violence that happened on January 6th at the U.S. Capitol. He's an idiot. And he still thinks that Garland shouldn't prosecute him. What a disgusting... Hmm. Moral blameworthiness is not in doubt. What a maroon. All right, let me go to an actual American patriot who doesn't hate you. Yes. From the ridiculous to the sublime, we leave Rich Lowry behind. I'll try never to read anything by him again. We go to Julie Kelly. Julie Kelly in American Greatness, her article is entitled, It's Inevitable, Trump Will Be Indicted. She says, a few days after federal agents stormed Donald Trump's castle in Palm Beach last week, Judge Beryl Howell berated a man from Georgia for his involvement in the Capitol protest January 6, 2021. Judge Howell told Glenn Simon, a Trump supporter, who pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct on restricted grounds, quote, Listening without question to political rhetoric that leads to serious offenses, criminal conduct is not an excuse when you're standing in a court of law. You've got to use your common sense and your own sense of who you are and how you would like to conduct yourself as an American citizen before just blindly doing what a political figure says, unquote. Judge Howell then sentenced... Glenn Simon to eight months in prison. The political figure to whom the judge was referring is President Trump, and Judge Howell is not just any judge. She's the chief judge of the D.C. District Court that is overseeing at least 850 criminal cases related to the Capitol protest. Judge Howell was appointed by Barack Obama in 2010. She does not disguise her partisan leanings or her contempt for Trump supporters. She describes the four-hour disturbance on Capitol Hill as, quote, criminal activity that is, that is designed, that is destined to go down in the history books of this country, unquote. She has scolded prosecutors for not bringing harsher charges in January 6 cases while insisting the hundreds of thousands of Americans who protested Joe Biden's election that day had no legitimate grievance. She urged the government to set damages to the Capitol at $500 million rather than the accurate figure of $1.4 million in order to significantly boost restitution fines against January 6th defendants. During a hearing last year, Judge Howell mocked Representative Andrew Clyde, Republican of Georgia, for saying video footage from inside the Capitol on January 6th, looked like a normal tourist visit. During a plea hearing for Leonard Gruppo, who pleaded guilty to the petty offense of parading in the Capitol, 
Judge Howell asked, Your purpose was not to be a tourist walking through the Capitol, was it? Gropo said he was not there as a tourist. Judge Howell then refused to accept his plea until Gropo admitted that he was in Washington on January 6th, quote, as part of a demonstration in support of President Trump, unquote. Judge Howell's lectures and hostility are just a taste of what hundreds of Trump supporters have endured at the E. Barry, at the e. Barrett Pretty Man courthouse in the nation's capital over the past 19 months. Even though most face low-level misdemeanor charges, judges nonetheless treat January 6th protesters like domestic terrorists while often blaming Trump for what they consider an illegal incursion into the ruling class's personal fiefdom of Washington, D.C. that day. And they are salivating at the chance to arraign Donald Trump. It now appears inevitable that the Justice Department will bring criminal charges against the former president. FBI Director Christopher Wray's stunt at Mar-a-Lago, August 8th, is part of creating the optical illusion that Donald Trump is guilty of any number of crimes related to January 6th or the mishandling of secret government documents, or both. On Monday, the Justice Department subpoenaed another Trump White House lawyer as illegal momentum accelerates. Attorney General Merrick Garland is doing his part to build the public case while Lisa Monaco, his deputy, runs the day-to-day lawfare operation against Trump. Monaco, a longtime Obama confidant who worked in his White House until the last day, is a rabid Trump hater. She intends to finish what the Obama Justice Department started in 2016 by indicting Donald Trump. Of course, technically, any indictment would be the result of a grand jury investigation, proceedings held in the same courthouse, filled with loathing for Donald Trump and his supporters. Grand juries composed of residents in a city that gave Trump only 5% of the vote in 2020 and 4% in 2016 have issued hundreds of indictments and thousands of criminal charges against January 6th protesters. This includes charges against 16 protesters for seditious conspiracy, a rare criminal offense for which no American has ever been convicted. Federal prosecutors are enjoying similar success before regular juries. Garland's Justice Department is undefeated in jury trials of January 6th defendants. D.C. juries have returned unanimous guilty verdicts on every single charge in seven trials since March. This includes convictions on obstruction of an official proceeding, a vague post-Enron law never before used against political prisoners. A jury also quickly convicted Trump advisor Steve Bannon on two counts of contempt of Congress. The obstruction count is one of the offenses Garland's office likely will file against Trump. As evidence mounts that Trump supporters cannot get a fair trial in Washington, surveys of prospective jurors conducted by defense counsel show a heavy bias against January 6th protesters. D.C. District Court judges have denied each change of venue motion. Coverage of the January 6th Select Committee hearings undoubtedly has amplified that bias, especially for high-profile defendants such as members of the Oath Keepers. The committee has focused on the roles of both the Oath Keepers 
and Proud Boys, airing videos of their conduct that day and attempting to tie these alleged militias to President Trump. A week after a former member of the Oath Keepers testified before a televised hearing in July, defense attorneys representing the Oath Keepers filed another motion to delay the trial and move it out of D.C. One defense attorney explained to Judge Amit Mehta, another Obama appointee, the main point we have to consider is that you have a congressional committee that goes out and paints the Oath Keepers as white supremacists. Judge Mehta rejected the argument and took umbrage at another attorney's suggestion The committee's work was political. Judge Mehta scolded the attorney, saying, This is not a forum to express your political views or your views about the motivations of the committee. I don't think they're hosting the hearings just to interrupt this trial. He denied the motion. The first Oath Keepers trial begins next month. It's possible the Justice Department will charge Trump for conspiracy for allegedly working with the so-called militias to attack the Capitol. This is the legal and judicial circle of hell now fired up to come for President Trump, a vengeful Justice Department run by Obama loyalists working with a weaponized FBI to bring criminal charges against hundreds of Trump supporters who then face the wrath of enraged judges of both political parties. There's no way out. And at this point, there's no way out for Merrick Garland either. Democrats have raised expectations that Trump soon will be in handcuffs. Failure to do so will result in a harsh backlash by their own voters this fall. After six years of promises, Democrats better deliver the goods on Trump or face intra-party revolt. Americans should prepare for the inevitable, the unprecedented sight of a former president pleading not guilty to crimes he's alleged to have committed by a Justice Department run by his successor, and potential rival in the next presidential election. One can only imagine the big smile on Judge Beryl Howell's face. And that is Julie Kelly at amgreatness.com with her article, It's Inevitable Trump Will Be Indicted. You know, I, I want to hope that she's wrong, but she's making too much sense. I don't want her to be right, but she's making too much sense. And that, indeed, is scary. All right. Hit it, Brian. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. It's the Doc Washburn Show Tweet of the Day. Brought to you by RedRiverYourWay.com. Red River Your Way, a big old car dealership in the middle of the USA, which believes in freedom, including your freedom to buy the car, truck, van, or SUV of your choice the way you want to online. Have it delivered to your front door anywhere in the continental United States of America. I got to tell you, I got a great deal from them in the interest of full disclosure. All right. Now, and of course, if you're in central Arkansas, you can just, you know, go to their actual store. Uh, My wife and I are big fans of British humor. Um, She has watched a lot of Faulty Towers. I've watched a lot of Jeeves and Wooster. But I've never seen this show called W1A. Are you familiar with the uh, the show called W1A? Because I came across a clip from it on Twitter, and this is our tweet of the day. It is just 
hilarious. Here we go. Just to be clear about where we are now, is Carol actually contracted? Well, exactly, yes. Is Carol actually contracted? Well, I mean, she. I mean, I've spent the last two days on the phone to her agents, trying to sell them the idea of Alan Titchmarsh as an A-lister, and to Alan's agents, trying to sell them the idea of Carol as a, you know, trying to sell them the idea of Carol. Oh no, no, brilliant, Lucia. Well done, you. Yeah, lovely, Lucia. So is Carol actually contracted? Well, she, I mean, not legally. No. Oh, okay, well, that's something. No, but I mean morally. Oh, no, 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 brilliant. I mean, she's coming in this morning, and after everything we've said to her. Oh, well, yes, no, no, brilliant. No, no, absolutely, very strong. Yeah. Remember how uh, David Letterman used to make fun of whatever network he was on, NBC, when he's on Late Night after Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and then CBS, when he didn't get the Tonight Show gig and went up against Jay Leno. He'd always, always, always make fun of the network he worked for. Okay, so from what I gathered, W1A uh, was a series that ran on the BBC making fun of the BBC. So is Carol actually contracted? Uh, well, yes, is Carol actually contracted? Well, you know, I've been speaking to her in the past couple of days about the idea of... Oh, brilliant, brilliant then. So is she actually contracted? Well, not legally, but morally. Oh, yes, brilliant, brilliant. <laughs> if the rest of the show is as funny as that, I think I'm going to like it. All right, pray for our country now more than ever. You've been listening to episode 218 of the all-new Doc Washburn Show. The views and opinions expressed on the Doc Washburn Show do not necessarily reflect those of our advertisers, but they love us and we love them. Today's program has been produced by Tim Terrible, directed by Mick Messy. This has been a Terribly Messy production. Portions of today's show will be taken overseas and dropped. If you like a transcript of today's episode of the all-new Doc Washburn Show, simply peel the roof off a Rolls-Royce panel truck and send it to Mansur's Computer Solutions, 7th floor of the Ephemeral B. Smoot Building, Whitehall, Arkansas, in care of Sheriff Mansour Sempier the 10th. And that's the way it is. Tuesday, August 16th, 2022.